Madeline from Midwife. David Nance. Seth Graham. Kiaville. Mike from Uniform. Lee Noble. Braden J. record under his own name called Dark Arts. Joshua may be best known as the bassist and front person for the New York City-based punk band The Dead Bettys, who are re-releasing their back catalog to the world. In this interview, we talk a lot about Madonna and Sonic Youth, a pre-This Is It New York City, and Joshua's experience being the target of a homophobic right-wing media smear campaign. It gets pretty personal, and I really value Joshua's insight and vulnerability. Check it out. Welcome to the Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hall, and I am talking via Zoom to Joshua Ackley in Midtown Manhattan. So I was introduced to Joshua's work uh, through a single that he released not too long ago called Bombs Away off of the album Dark Arts, and came to find out that Joshua has quite, uh, quite a history in the New York City punk scene and just an all-around interesting story. So um, I guess, Joshua, we'll take it back to kind of where you grew up. Where, like, where are you originally from? Well, I was born in South Carolina, but we moved when I was pretty young to very, very rural New Mexico. Um, the Four Corners, in fact. Um, okay. So like the closest towns are Durango, Colorado, or Shiprock or Farmington, New Mexico. So very extremely rural. Um, and yeah, I grew up there. <laughs> what, what brought you out there? Um, my parents kind of used a financial um, pitfall and I think they just wanted to get away. So we moved to a very rural location. Gotcha. I'm, uh, I'm from Denver originally. So I'm, I've been okay. to Durango. I'm familiar with the Four Corners area. Yep. So, so growing up in a sounds like an incredibly rural, very isolated place, what was what were some of your first experiences that you can remember with music? Was, was it playing in your house? Did your parents listen to music? What was you know what was happening there? Yeah, I mean, my parents are very um, very very liberal intellectuals, so you know essentially you name it, they would be into it. So my first memories of music really would be, you know, my mom loved Prince. You know, she, she, was, a def- she was definitely a child of the 60s, um, loved Joan Baez and all of that, that, but like Prince really hit her heart. <laughs> and she like listened to a ton of Prince when we were growing up. So it would be like Prince, Sheena Easton, stuff like that. And then my dad, it really ran the gamut, you know, pretty sometimes experimental music, he would get records from like the World Fair in Berlin when they were just kind of starting to experiment with synthesizers. And so we would listen to some of that, but then also like, you know, 70s rock, like Steppenwolf. Um, so it was a pretty eclectic mix growing up, but first big memories of music were like, you know, Prince, <laughs> Sheena Easton, um, Stuff my mom was really getting into. I mean, she would like perm her hair, you know. Nice. Do you remember um, kind of like was, was did you gravitate towards that stuff, or was there ever a time where you kind of had a 
like decisive break and and decided that you liked something that maybe that your your parents didn't introduce you to or or maybe you did like what they you know what they were playing in the house and you kind of really like ran with or, or kind of had an obsession with the first big i think breakaway for my parents was madonna i mean she was so dangerous you know what i mean and when you're when you're young and you see like this kind of vulgar creature cascade down off of a wedding cake in a wedding dress and kind of like simulate you know masturbation it's pretty wild madonna was out there and i like she was so colorful and you know everything she did just seemed so outrageous so my first big break from my parents was definitely Madonna. I mean, they, they kind of got into her. They would always listen to music with me and my brother and kind of, you know, explore it with us. But I'm sure I was way more into Madonna than they wanted me to be. <laughs> was that like MTV? Like, did you discover her via like MTV? Because that sounds like a very yeah. like, yeah. You kind of have to like yeah. see the, the visual package, I feel like, to kind of like get yeah. Madonna. The whole thing, you know, it's like, there, there it is. <laughs> the mm-hmm. spectacle. So kind of moving in, so like Madonna was, sounds like a pretty big obsession for you. Did that lead to other kind of more like pop-based artists? Or I know that Madonna like, you know, straddled a lot of lines between like kind of like yeah. the New York punk scene and like, but also yeah. like was kind of like a jet engine for everything that was really cool happening and like, synthesizer based like electronic dance music and synth pop and stuff like that did you ever kind of go down those corridors or or where to go from there i'm pretty well i like to stay very eclectic but when it comes down to it i really love two things and it's like noise hard rock and disco i think i think the two of those are just like so prime and Madonna, really, I would say, is kind of the gateway to both. You know, yeah. like image-wise, Madonna was fairly edgy. In fact, I mean, if you go back and watch Truth or Dare, and she's just like in a weird corset with cone bras and like Egyptian dancers around her, it, it's all very strange. And it really opens the door to some like good classic punk rock. Um, but then really, you know, I think the best of Madonna is based in disco. So, you know, Madonna really kind of was the gateway for like D-Light um, and Donna Summer. I mean, Donna Summer is actually probably my favorite artist of all time. Um, but I don't think I would have gotten to Donna Summer had it not been for Madonna. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly Madonna would not have had a career had it not been for Donna Summer. So, you know, the cycle of life. But, you know, I think as Madonna's edginess and her taking really allowed me to kind of look at people like Kim Gordon or Skunk and Nancy and just say like, these are people who really are edgy. And then you, you hear their sound and it's even edgier. It's not just about their image. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely broke away in my teens. I did not spend much time listening to Madonna for sure. So mentioning um, Kim Gordon, um, did that kind of lead you into um, kind of the, more interesting areas of like noisy or indie rock kind of in during that era of, of, you know, the nineties with Sonic youth and and stuff like that. Sonic youth was a game changer for me. I mean, I first heard, I I was a brat of a child. Um, (laughs) It came to like being, you know, knowing more than my peers and being ahead of the curve and just that I was that kid that like, you know, the Kill Rocks like mailing list thing every week in the mail. But I just, I found out about Sonic Youth, I think when I was 10, because I would just like steal magazines from like either my dad or my brother and just read them. And it was a Daydream Nation review. And so I begged my parents, you know, and I saved up my allowance and they took me to town and I bought Daydream Nation and I had never heard anything like it. I, I was just, completely blind I, I this, that changed the trajectory of all of my life in so many good ways just to hear something that's not typical american radio at all not even in not even in standard tuning at all you know that album is not in what we would call like a western tune so it's 
that that was the first time I really, really, really understood how much I loved music and that I wanted to make it. And then, of course, through I just found so many other bands and became obsessed with rock and roll for a long period of time. What was it about Daydream Nation that kind of like broke your brain? It's magical. I mean, you know, there there are songs on Daydream Nation that if I'm like at the peak of happiness or the pit of despair, I will go back to and be like, this is, this is the song I want to hear for this moment. Um, you know, the way they managed to tap into something that seems almost beyond human. You know, it's a very spiritual album, in my opinion, like Cross the Breeze and The Sprawl and, and Candle. I mean, those songs are outrageously good. And they're kind of like, like it's like lightning strikes certain artists a few times and they're one of the lucky artists where it's just like holy cow that album is bulletproof it's like Tori Amos's voice for Paley where it's just like hell happy or good grief I think it, like if you if you aren't um if you kind of have that gene where you can really appreciate something like free jazz and you can really yeah. appreciate something like noise but you were never really oriented in that way, right? And like, and so your first introduction to that was Sonic Youth. I feel like yeah. that, like that, really kind of like strikes that that center for you because what you're hearing is you're hearing, you know, you know, a couple of like really really talented musicians um, just completely locked into one another and like improvising, but in kind of like a structured setting. Um, using a um using like to the best of their like i mean to the best of what was available all of these really really interesting like effects pedals but also like extended technique and stuff like that so yeah that's that's a man 10 years old that's a great <laughs> it's a great it, intro into all that it completely changed my life i mean i still i still listen to i listen to that album when i go for runs you know i mean it's just like it's such a meditation, and I think that's one thing that really sets Sonic Youth apart from other artists, is everything they do kind of comes into this meditative form where you can really just get lost. Yeah. You know, they, they, really, they let you in, and Steve Shelley's drumming is so technically precise that he holds it together. You know what I mean? Like, without that, it would be a mess. I'm always um, like, I, I love that kind of Thurston Moore kind of came out of that Glenn Branca, um, like Manhattan school of like hypnotic kind of spiritual minimalism um, that was kind of like the tail end of like Glenn Branca and like Lamont Young and like all, all of that stuff. Like it, it's a clear, like clear lineage and like, almost like, yeah, the closest that we would ever get to like a distillation of, of that kind of like era and form of like American minimalism, but in a pop context, right? It's, yeah, totally brilliant. <laughs> I think I was, uh, my, the first Sonic Youth record I ever heard was Goo, um, which has some like just bangers on it. Um, I think like Tunic is one of the best songs. Yeah, but then listening, I I can distinctly remember where I was. Like, I bought um, I bought Daydream Nation from like a UCD store. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like probably like five bucks. And I can remember where I was when I heard like the just the opening, like the opening, like tring, to like Daydream Nation, and just been like, whoa. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, that's yeah, such a such a great great. Uh, just landmark I mean, album of like American experimental music. They have, I mean, Sonic Youth really has so many landmark albums. Like Evil, you could say the yeah. same thing. Nut Sister as well, and then Washing Machine. I think Washing Machine almost had more of an impact than Damnation. Murray I mean, Washing Machine was like Murray Street. Oh yeah, Mur Murray Street came out when I was um, like a junior in high school. So that was like contemporary Sonic Youth for me. And yeah. so I, I already kind of had, you know, like some of the stuff 
like some of like, yeah, I had Daydream Nation and Goo under my belt, but then listening to Murray Street, like in, even though I, I had no context to like New York City, like I'd never been there. I was like growing up in like suburban Denver. I just felt like that, like just encapsulated way better than anything that came out of like kind of what New York City kind of must have like kind of felt like during that time. So yeah, yeah such a, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, that is their 9-11 album. And mm -hmm. I, that was a strange time. Yeah. So, okay, so getting pretty deep into like, uh, like 90s indie rock, um, were there any, um, and, and especially kind of like, and I, I love that kind of like that connection between um, like Madonna and, and Kim Gordon, because um, Kim Gordon's a badass. Like uh, her, like, <laughs> she, like her, like her solos and stuff and, and recent stuff, I saw Body Head a couple of years ago and she just like slays, um, just absolute, yeah, the best. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I, um, something that's gotten me in a lot of, you know, late night bar arguments <laughs> is I, I think Hole is a much better band than, than Nirvana. And I found, you know, I found Hole through Kim Gordon because she produced Pretty on the Inside, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant record. I mean, it, it is one of the greatest albums. Uh, um, and people don't treat it that way. I think, you know, Courtney Love just has that reputation where they don't, you know, compartmentalize her aside and then just actually listen to the music. Um, but, you know, I, from Sonic Youth, I went straight into Hole. So it was like Hole, Tori Amos, <laughs> Liz Fair, like just the trifecta. If you were like a, a gay kid in a small town, um, that was kind of like you had to listen to those artists. Nice. And I was not... Sorry, what, what was that? You broke up a little bit there. Not immune. Okay, yeah, yeah. So talking about like growing up, like you said, like as a gay kid in a small town, what like was that, did that feel like, did that make those records like even more kind of like vital? And Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Um, so like, it sounds like after... Um, after high school, did you move to, to New York City shortly after there? Okay. I did. I mean, it's, it's um, my parents are very liberal, so I was never technically in the closet. Um, but being from Kirtland, New Mexico, that was a brutal, brutal sure. time. And so, you know, I got out as soon as I could. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I moved to New York um, and was in bands. So... So did you, um, during that time, did you play music as well? Were you like, and, and what was your kind of introduction into playing music? I told my dad I wanted to move to New York and be in bands, I think sometime around like 13, 14. And he was like, well, no one's going to take you seriously if you don't play an instrument. <laughs> Pick one. And I picked the bass because Kim Gordon played the bass. You yeah. Know? And then I... I, they were like, do you want less? I was like, absolutely not. And so I actually learned to play bass by playing along to Sleater Kenny records because they didn't have a bass player. So I thought, you know, if I can write parts to Sleater Kenny songs, I can kind of figure out how to write music that way. You know what I mean? And like, you know, make it sound good. So I would just kind of take every Sleater Kenny record and write bass lines to them. Awesome. And... So then you moved to you moved to New York City um, shortly after high school. Um, w like what what kind of what what time period w was that? Two thousand. Okay, so this is like right. Is this kind of like right before kind of like kind of like the big New York City indie revival with like the Strokes and like Interpol and like yeah. all of that? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that was right on the cusp. We actually recorded the first EP at Funhouse, which was like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's big like studio. So it was a very, it's funny because back 2000, 2002, there were very few bands. I mean, the Liars were just getting started. Um, we were very active. In fact, we were pretty 
aggressive. Um, Real quick, when you say we, like bring me up to speed. Okay, you're you're playing in the Dead Baddies then. Okay. Yep. So we formed 2000, and then just that bulldozed through over a decade. Got it. So yeah, so it sounds like um, kind of before that big like boom took place. Um, yeah, what was it like playing, you know, playing in New York pre like, this is it? <laughs> oh, it was really awesome. I mean, like New York had, I mean, I'm going to really date my, I already have clearly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the party scene pre 2005 was extremely different. Um, and, and some of the bigger parties, you know, you had a club called the Lux, which was the foundation of Electroclash. And that's where, you know, like Peaches and all of those bands got their big start. Um, and then you had uh, um, just some really, like, you the motherfucker party, um, which Chick 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 kind of got their start at. Um, and then you just had a lot of Lower East Side parties that you could play. I mean, we played more probably like warehouses than anything back in those days. There was a warehouse called Office Ops, which was just in an old factory and they made this big skating rink on the top floor and put a cage in the middle and bands in that cage. People just skated and partied around you, which was really wild and a ton of fun. Um, so those, those days were really awesome before Bushwick and Williamsburg became what they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were pretty wild. I mean, there was a lot of empty real estate where, you know, punk kids like us could just do whatever we wanted. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of really good hip hop shows back then too. So it became, it was interesting to see like the swoop in of a lot of venues um, starting in like 2004. So tell me about the formation of the Dead Bettys. Um, how did you all find each other and, and what was kind of the, the start and kind of like the influences there? After high school, a guy I went to high school with reached out and asked what I was doing. I was like, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting the hell out, but I'm going to form a band. He was like, well, if you're going to be forming a band, I want in. And I was like, really? Okay. So we actually moved to New York together. Awesome. Um, and, you know, we got to the city and we, we were like so hell-bent on just getting out and playing that we would play as a two-piece. So it would be me on bass, really distorting my parts and just screaming, and him on drums. Um, and then once we started to play out live more and kind of get taken a little more seriously, uh, we were like, we should get a guitar player. We just You guys are like a proto-lightning bolt. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so what were, um, what were some of y'all's like influences with starting the Dead Betty's? Um, God, I mean, we had a collective of boys and toys. Um, just how visceral they were and how like, gut-wrenching they sounded. Um, clearly Sonic Youth was always uh, a major part. Um, for Derek, I would say, you know, he was just kind of one of those like alternative kids from the 90s who really liked Jimmy Chamberlain. You know, like he just really loved the way the Smashing Pumpkins played. But he also really liked hip hop, which kind of turned me on because I always thought really good classic 90s hip hop beats under a hard rock song would go very far. And I'm not talking about like the disaster that was Rage Against the Machine or because that's all when people say, you know, like hip hop rock and that's what they're referencing, they get it so wrong. I mean, that's just like hair metal disguised as like, you know, the worst of white people wearing like jerseys. It's like, oh God, no, that's not hip hop and it's not hip hop rock. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? If you get a DJ who's like scratching on the turntables, like that's, that's legit. Blow your eyes out. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we, I, we, we had a really good foundation of, you know, we wanted, we, we wanted to be an aggressively loud 
um, noisy band. Gotcha. Was there other stuff um, in New York that like, or like kind of just around you that was a little bit more in kind of like that noisy kind of like noise rock vein that you could kind of still dance to a little bit? You know, we were, I will say we were oddballs. I think um, we did play shows with some bands. I mean, like early stages of the Liars who definitely had a similar kind of like really dissonant noise. We were just always much faster in tempo. So mm. it was always hard to think that were as loud and fast as us. Um, so that that really kind of set us apart and probably a good way because we did get booked all over the place and we would play very, very eclectic shows. You know, we would play with a, a large swath of bands versus getting pigeonholed into like, the yeah, yeah, yeahs only play with these two other bands and that's it. We got to play with a lot of cool acts because people kind of know what to do with us. Yeah, that's a, that's sometimes a good problem to have, you know, when you're not quite, uh, yeah, you could fit into like a lot of bills. Um, and, yeah. And I, it does have to be said that there weren't, things have changed quite a bit, but there were not a lot of, bands fronted by a gay guy um, going out and getting signed on labels. <clears throat> and we were, so I mean, Eisen Studios didn't treat us at all. They had no idea. They had no reference point. I think for some of like our engineers, I was probably the first gay person they, they'd been in contact with or openly gay, you know? So there was that too. And so, you know, we were really loud and probably more aggressive than most metal bands in the city. But when we got booked with those bands, they had no idea what to think of us. Mm. Because they were, holy shit, this guy is like <laughs> really gay. <laughs> and they are way more than us. So we it was it was interesting. So kind of on on that front, like, you know, when when you think of like the history of like kind of like queer musicians and like indie rock, right? You have like you have your Huskurdu, you know, you know, you have like whole host of like uh like california bands kind of like like uh like limp wrist and and, and stuff like that um Your real was, team. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah was that like was that um like how did that factor into like the formation of of dead Bettys and in terms of maybe even more of like a like less outside of the music but more of like your kind of like place in sort of like New York City's indie rock scene. So it's interesting because we never, Derek, the drummer and I, Derek, we never really thought about my sexuality. He's, and we never really thought about that angle um, until we started playing out live and then people were basically like, oh, well, you're a queer band. Mm. And it just kind of got put on us. Um, I decided to, you know, why not embrace it? I've never, I've never really run for myself, so why would I do that then? Um, so Bob Mould, you know, we actually, Bob Mould did us a, some huge favor. You know, he actually hosted a lot of the gigs we played. Wow. We toured, you know, kind of got his sign off. Um, and then we're, out, we're friends with some of the Limp Risk guys too. So, you know, once you're in a scene like that, you know, people are very supportive like Donna Dresch you know the first tour we ever went on was with her um and for that tour she on Chainsaw released our first EP so you know once once people kind of decide that like part of that scene you know they will really coalesce around you now sometimes they won't <laughs> you know there were bands that that really didn't like us you know the gossip couldn't stand us um which is funny but whatever who cares um but, you know, we, we did get a lot of support from some of the, like, elder statesmen, you know, even even um, Roddy Bottom of Imperial Teen, you know, like, he's come to a lot of our shows and kind of given us that, like, symbol of endorsement. So that that stuff is always good. But, yeah, we, we never intentionally set out to be a queer band. It just kind of, like, went that direction. And once it did, there was really no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. So you all played through like the like the two thousand like 
Um, and, and, and we'll kind of get back to here because um, it, it sounds like, you know, dead Bettys are, are you, have you guys, like, where are you guys at right now um, with, with the band? Oh, we're not a band. I mean, okay. <laughs> but, but you're, re, you're re-releasing. Yeah, so I got contacted by a label saying, you know, do you guys want to put out your entire collection? Cool. And I looked into the label and Dead Betty's, we got kind of screwed over by labels <laughs> religiously. And we signed a warning, which I'm, I'm very proud of, but maybe that wasn't the right move for us. Um, so it's, that's, a, that's a bittersweet symphony, if you will. Um, but I looked into it and decided I didn't want to actually go with this label. Um, I actually didn't want anyone to own our back catalog. Um, none of us did. And so we just all had a conversation about it and decided, you know, it is 20 years after we were founded. Why don't we just put it out? Yeah. Why don't we, you know, collectively have our own label, put it out under that, we own the licensing, we own everything. And so that's what we're doing. And it, it, it feels nice. You know, it's nice to look back and be like, we did a ton of work. <laughs> yeah. Did, so with signing with Warner and everything like that, it, was it difficult to like get your masters back and, and stuff like that? Or, or was that? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and no comment, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> you might not be able to comment. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've always, okay, so as, so I run a, I run a really small record label um, called White and Sepulchre Records, and, you know, kind of in the DIY vein, it's, it's very much like, um, you know, I will, I will basically pay for, you know, like the production, and then we'll split everything 50-50, so it's like, like, it, it, there's, there's an added benefit of, like, of um, putting, of, you know, releasing something with a small label. Um, if like, that's not something that you necessarily want to, you know, take on yourself. But I, I always kind of wonder like, what it, like, why would, why would somebody like, for what purpose would somebody be on a label in 2020? If you own all the means of distribution, you know, right. your, your, yourself. Um, and so, so it sounds like you guys kind of made that decision of, um, putting, you know, uh, doing it yourself and, and releasing, is it like your full discography or is it like, um, we are, yeah, okay. we are. we're doing like an album a week. We're just barreling through. Wow. And when, like, tell me like the timeline of, of, uh, of, of that project. So we did, we decided to compile like, uh, kind of a hits collection or like what we would call our hits collection. So that's what came out today. Um, next week we're just starting from the list and then for four or five weeks each week we'll go in, in, in order of which came out when. Um, and it's, it's kind of good for us because we, we really did release on labels, you know, and, and even, even the band I was in after Teen Vice signed to a pretty big label. Um, and it's just kind of nice to be like, whatever, there's no pressure. And we just be like, well, we got, you know, we got an announcement and now it's up. Move on. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, okay, so kind of kind of backtracking. Um, how long was um, Dead Betty's a band? When did you guys kind of finally call it quotes? So we were a band, I would say, in our prime, like, band. And, and for a lot of that, that was our job. Um, 2000 to 2010 was the like main active years. Um, we did record on and off and play random shows up until 2014, but our activity really, really slowed down um, 2011 through 2014. And then we just, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> we called it a day. And so was that when you were doing like other projects, like you mentioned Teen Vice and, and, um, it really just kind of, you know, I, I mean, on a personal note, you know, we started fighting a lot. I mean, there's something to be said about signing to a major label and then getting dropped from a major label <laughs> that will really mess with you, especially if that is what you've worked so hard to do. 
Um, and it really, really became such a, an internally high stakes game that, you know, we just stopped getting along the unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all lifetime friends. Now I'm actually launching a band with the former guitar player uh, right now. And the drummer was in Team Vice, but like as a unit, the three of us, I mean, we did a lot of probably, we, we did a lot of damage to each other, you know? I mean, we toured together, we lived together, we recorded together, we released albums together. I mean, that just gets so intense. Yeah, yeah. I Mixing, you know, like personal relationships and when it becomes like a high stakes um, business money-making thing, it, yeah, I can imagine that that is... <laughs> That can take a toll. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I think it's I think it's so interesting. Like you know, we kind of started talking about like '90s indie rock, and like you know, there's that big signing boom in like the early '90s where like oh, yeah. the same trajectory happened. You know, like you know, plucked like all of a sudden indie rock became like a cool commodity, right? <laughs> that um, yeah. that yeah, we, you you saw bands getting you know plucked up from you know the the underground and you know giving these well, really <laughs> yeah exactly and and then just like you know just you know uh disappearing or just completely like you know self-immolating um yeah. <laughs> and then it, it you know with with all of a sudden like you know indie rock being cool again um like it, new york city especially indie rock being cool yeah. again um it makes sense that there was kind of another kind of like signing yep. bonanza there and was yeah, it's funny because we were we were we were not on the user friendly side, so having that vantage point has always been interesting for me because, you know, we really like were oddballs, and I love I actually love that looking back. I think it's probably what I'm most proud of is we didn't like fit into like the Walkman template, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was definitely like a a a very kind of like self-seriousness you know like a very yeah like very uh kind of like what we're doing is is art you know um and and it produced it produced some great stuff i mean like um yeah like the walkman and i like you know like the band before like jonathan fire eater had some like really like you know some solid songs um and and so then, kind of moving away from the the dead Bettys, um, you mentioned you were in Teen Vice. Um, Teen Vice was a band. Like, what else were you doing, kind of, uh, after that period? Um, I mean, Teen Vice took a lot of it. Took up a lot of time. Um, we really, you know, it was with one of my idols slash best friends. So that's always tricky. Um, but I, I knew I wanted to make an album with her. And we wanted to get it right. And so we recorded probably two versions of the same album uh, before we ever settled on it. Um, and we, you know, released it on a label and played it out all the time. Um, and then the drummer and she both had children. At the okay. same time, it's like that, that, you know, kind of puts a, a two yaws on whatever you're going to be doing. Um, and, you know, I'm also like, uh, an executive at a nonprofit. So I, I also, you know, have a pretty solid career. Um, I'll always do music, but you know, there have been a, there's been a good year and a half where I've just needed to fully focus. Um, but I'll always make music. I mean, I released my solo album and now I'm in a disco band. So it's <laughs> never not active. <laughs> so you, you were also during that time pretty he- like you said, pretty heavily in like the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, in your, in your press release and, 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 you know, reading a little bit about kind of like prior to your, your, your solo album, you worked at the Girl Scouts um, for a while. And, and I read about um, the, just like how your position got kind of sucked into this, like, and what we're seeing right now completely on steroids, but like this, like disgusting, like right wing, like medium, like propaganda machine. Um, and all of a sudden it's like this, this 
thing that you work so hard on, like, you know, like this, you know, your, your band was all of a sudden like being weirdly ripped out of context and, you know, used to smear you and the Girl Scouts. Um, So I don't know how much you want to go into that, but like that must have like been a, a huge, uh, I don't know, just like turning point or, or, or just ordeal for you to kind of go through. You know, it's interesting because like, I was so severely, severely bullied in junior high. I think I have really good coping mechanisms with that kind of nonsense. And so, you know, I really, once those articles started coming out, I kind of saw them for what they were, you know, just like this is, and I could take myself out of it and just say, this is an ideology that wants to destroy you. And then your job is to not get destroyed. Um, So, you know, my singular focus really became to succeed at all costs. Um, And I think that's, it sounds really cold, um, but it kind of has to be. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you're put in a position like that, and you're now the adult that's being attacked by other adults, and you know that other gay children are looking at you now. It really becomes your job to say, I'm never going to apologize. I have nothing to be ashamed of, and I'm actually going to succeed and rise from these awful people, you know? and. You, you just kind of have to not ignore it. You, there's no way to ignore it. I mean, right. I was getting death threats, you know, like Jesus. Breitbart.com decided to really go full force. They went full force. And, you know, there were times where I just had to turn everything off, you know, but here I am. Like, <laughs> what did they, what did they accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Well, it just seems like it's the last, the last, like, gasp of like an ideology that knows that they've lost the culture war like they know that they've lost right and so like if 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 like at least inadvertently like you might have turned a whole lot of kids onto like queer core (laughs) right because they're like what is this and they they, they google and they're like oh shit like (laughs) this rules there is there is that The, the unfortunate consequences are a lot of people in professional settings who will, without even meaning to do so, say things like, well, you're a different person now, or that was then, this is now you've grown. And, you know, I actually made a very, very concerted decision to say, I'm not different. In fact, I'm the exact same person that when that music was made, and I have every right to express myself artistically however way I want. I will never apologize. I did rub a lot of people the wrong way for not apologizing. Um, but I'm steadfast in that. And I'm so glad I didn't because I would really, really regret that. I, I At this age that I'm at now, I'm years removed from all of that. I would be so disappointed in myself had I ever apologized. That's, gr- that's great. I mean, that's, I mean, the art itself is like self-evident. Right. But for you to like not kowtow to like the political pressures to like disown it or, or to like make excuses or apologies for it. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, that's how they get you, you know? Yeah. 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 You, right. Yeah. They want you to like, like disavow this like very real and like vibrant and like really important part of like not only yourself but like the like the people you played to and the people you played with like yeah. and and even just the form of art itself for making music or how important it is that we live in a country that that's something people really do cherish you know people cherish the arts and that's one of america's greatest exports so can't really attack it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's really great to, to hear you, to hear you say that and, and kind of where you've, you know, landed with all of that. Um, let's, I, I'd love to kind of fast forward to like um, the album that you just put out, um, your, your solo album. Tell me a little bit about um, those songs and maybe how it was formed and, and how that is maybe 
different than than what you like are putting out or kind of how that fits into the whole lineage of, of what you're doing? It, wow. Um, it's very, um, it's different. In, there are so many levels to how different it is. Um, so where to begin? Let me think. I was in a really intense professional environment for a few years, just based, just based on circumstance and, and my position. And um, one day in Purgatory, Colorado, the ski resort, um, I was skiing with my family and I just had a freak accident. I mean, I started going way too fast. I caught air, I was not prepared and my left leg dug in when I landed and my body kept moving. So I got a horrible injury. I, I tore my ACL, I had other problems with the same knee and then broke the shin in two places. So I wound up going from complete full throttle career to having to take four months completely off. And I was on disability so I couldn't have contact with work. My entire life just shut down just completely. And the surgeon that operated on me basically said, I will not do the surgery until you can guarantee that you will do nothing else. You will not work. You will devote all of your time to recovery. And that's for someone who's so busy for so long and is very career minded. That was terrifying. And so when everything shut down, I really started to realize I didn't really like myself. Um, and there were parts of who I had become that I really could not vibe with anymore. And I knew it had to be fixed and I didn't know how to do that. You know, and now I had all of this time completely alone. Um, and so I just made a studio in my pen and said, you know, there's only one way you're going to mend yourself back to you. And that's just make an album, just do it, make yourself do it and chart a course like a spelunking expedition in how you get back to you um, and learn to like yourself again versus this person you've become who's very kind of shrewd and compartmentalized and really just, you know, kind of not vapid, but really, really, really career-minded and that time for no one else. Um, and that's what that album really represents. I mean, each song really, really, um, goes deep <laughs> and goes deep in a way that I wasn't fully comfortable with releasing, but I just made myself do it. Um, you know, and there's a lot of storytelling on it, you know, sundowning song number two is, you know, my dad has really bad dementia and watching that is, it's hard, hard to watch, you know, it's hard to watch someone do that. But, you know, a lot of these are like really kooky spiritual songs where I'm like, if he was dead, what song would I want him to hear? You know what I mean? Like communicating on a different plane. Um, on another front, I always kind of have an agenda when I record. <laughs> and um, I'd never really fully been able to make pretty music, especially not in the Dead Baddies. Um, and I really wanted a pretty album. I, I wanted it to be full force, very pretty, very gauzy, you know, like kind of like reverb shoegaze, like straddle that line. Um, and at the end, in the end of all of that, I'm really happy with it. I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, it's really, really beautiful. Um, I, I love, like, it just sounds like there's this kind of very, like, simple, but like, not like the, like, you know, like, simple, like, it, like a very kind of like, there's a center to it but like, it sounds like very, very, very full. Um, and I, I love like that, you know, that, that single bombs away. I listened to that song just like over and over and over um, because it, it has like, it's almost like it's always like ascending. You know what I mean? It's just like on this, just like kind of this like straight trajectory um, yep. th that is very minimalist. Right. It's, it's yeah. like, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's almost kind of like, Reikian in its own in its own way right it's like um and and so yeah it it, it reminded me um a, a lot of like um 
and and this, this might not you know have any reference to you, but like there's this um, there's this album that I um, absolutely like. It's in like my top five like favorite records of like of all time. It's by this band called Veils, um, V A L E S. And um, are are you familiar? I am familiar. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. It, um, and it's also like a very simple record played mostly on acoustic guitar, but still like, but bringing in all of like these, like, you know, 20th century classical elements to it. Um, and it, it was like, um, it was an album that like, I listened to like just on repeat, like my dad passed away like six years ago. And it was just like one of those records that was just like, it, it, it had this inertia to it that like, just like kept me like in, <laughs> right. It was just like, cool, I can just like put this on and just like, it will carry me like all the way through. It also reminded me a lot of this band Aloha. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, where where they have this almost just like, you know, ineffable quality to like every instrument like on that record where it just sounds like it just like expands like five times bigger than like it actually is. Um, and that so- is, That yeah. is so- by the way, Aloha is so good. Like that is, I, I can't even believe. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I love yeah, Aloha. Good, yeah, like I, yeah, yeah. Two of my like, yeah, fa- like, you know, like because I'm my my musical tastes, you know, like expand from like you know like the most most harshest like dissonant harsh noise wall to like you know ambient music, right? And so like. Yeah, there's a lot of stops in between. Um, and, and so, I, but talking about kind of like the personal aspect of that record, um, the, the first song of the album like is written in second person, you know? And, and so knowing like the, the backstory uh, like of it, like, yeah, that like, it sounds like you really went to some like places. Like you, you really, yeah. yeah, did like a pretty thorough assessment of like, you know, this is, this like this is what you want right and um yeah how did i get here and how do i fix it you know like what's what's at the center here awesome well yeah it really yeah really really beautiful record i think everything that you were talking about really really translates through it so um so do you have any more plans for any more solo stuff you also mentioned that you're in a in a disco band right now well, solo stuff, yeah. I mean, I will definitely be releasing more solo albums. I mean, I think I had so, it was so fulfilling. Um, and it also was kind of like a reset. You know what I mean? Like it really regaged where I, where I come from specifically as a songwriter. And I think anything you do in a group or a band will benefit so much from doing that record because I, you know, compromise happens, but you don't always have to compromise as much as you think you do. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, now I can probably hold my own in a point of view in a band much better than I did before. Um, so yeah, I'm already kind of charting out <laughs> another solo album because it was just so fun to make. Um, actually, it was depressing to make, but fun at the same time. Yeah. Um, the disco band, I mean, it's been in talks for a long time. I think, I think disco is one of the purest forms of like real music. It gets such a bad rep, but if you go back and listen to like Donna Summer's Love Trilogy, that is such peak musicianship. And it, it, it just, it's a shame. I, I really do feel like white racism erased disco oh. in the 70s. 100% like that backlash was 100% racist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's all it was because I feel like people really have the wrong impression of disco and um, Eric Shepard from the Dead Betties and one of my closest friends, Lillian Ruiz, who's in like a funk band um, and also used to be an indie band called Holiday Holiday. Um, we've all talked about it for a long time, but I think we're now mature enough musicians to really do it the right way and not make it like kitschy or like, you know, like it's disco, 
but actually make a really, really deep, intense dance album. So we're, we're working on it. Yeah. I mean, anytime like you're at a, a party or like a rave or something like that and a disco beat comes on, I mean, it's just like yeah. undeniably like, uh, like that is what kind of pulls people in, you know? Yeah. And you know, the thing I think people get wrong with disco and I think what's right about disco a lot of the time, there's so much really, really sad, melancholic disco. Oh my God. Yeah. They're talking about Donna Summer. Like, you know, oh, like her, Donna like of sadness. haunting. Her voice is just like haunting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it gets, it gets a bad rep from like, you know, like chic, like, Yay, Love Freak, so chic. And that's great music. Like, yeah. I would never talk shit about chic. No. But it's not all happy. <laughs> of course. I mean, like, what? but what else are you going to play at, like, a, uh, you know, family barbecue or something oh, like that? Yeah. You know, like, it... it, it, it <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it has its place, you know? Like, totally. it, as, as, like, and, and like, I just, I, I kind of hate, like, I, I hate the idea of, like, pop music being this, like, something that's like looked down upon or like um yeah it's like yeah it's really elitist bullshit but like what i what i think is so cool about pop music now is um kind of like talk going back to madonna is like yeah. madonna like was like this jet engine for like all of these really really interesting producers and um especially like young electronic artists and it's the same thing that's happening in pop right now right like gone are like the days of like the Dr. Luke, you know, like hit makers and stuff like that. And, and, and all of a sudden, like, you know, if you look on the, like the liner notes of like some of these like big pop albums, you're going to find the, you're going to find avant-garde artists, right? Oh, I mean, she has a bad reputation sometimes because she should. Lady Gaga really gets away with some cool shit. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know if you've given Art Pop a good listen, but holy cow, that album's weird. <laughs> like, it's so weird. She's a weirdo. And then you look at the liner notes and you're like, oh, she's really working with some pretty, like, avant-garde folk. Like, yeah. she's right. And then you've got Chromatica. She just kind of swooped in with that shit. That is one of the best albums of the year. So, And it's so it, admittedly, I've never really given Lady Gaga, like, a, a, a listen, even though, like, from yeah, what yeah. you said, like, I respect her and kind of knowing kind of, like, the, the kind of, like, the, the art scene that she kind of, like, came from, I think is, like, I think is really cool. But um, that song, Rain On Me, is just, like, God, it's like, utter, like, utter perfection. Like, utter yeah. Perfection. There's another song in that album is like a sleeper hit and i guarantee in like four months it's going to be on the radio like non-stop mm -hmm. free woman that song is unbelievably good i'll, I'll have I, to check it out I, want, I wanted to diss that album so hard and be like she's done she's over <laughs> and then that song randomly came on and i was like oh, what okay fine yeah i feel like like um a, five six years ago you know we were having the same conversation about kanye west somebody who was just like yeah. in his orbit were, were like some of like Evian Christ, like Hudson Mohawk, you know, like all of like, these, like at that time, like 2011, like just like absolutely cutting edge, you know, like electronic artists. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think that like, you know, like visionaries will like as visionaries will, you know, if they are at the top, will will look at like what is what is interesting right and and like what is not only like i'm i'm sure that they have people who are like you know like feeding them stuff but i i like no matter what like they will be like they will hear something and they will seek it out um because that's that's what got them there in the first like going all the way back to prince you know prince like even to his like dying day you know was discovering new artists was oh, yeah. like yeah what was like um, bringing people up who he thought their music was interesting and good, right? So, like, I think that's just like, it's it's a social good, but it's also like, uh, like a feature of like I think truly visionary artists is that they 
you know, they, they, they look at what's out there and they um, can bring up like the most interesting talent. It's interesting about Prince because I think that, you know, Prince and Madonna happening at the same time was like a, an act of faith. I mean, that is those two existing in the same decade or two decades, I think was pretty important. You know, I think those two had so much to do with really pushing culture. And, you know, Prince was the guitar player on Like a Prayer, that whole album. And they right. don't even, they didn't even credit him in the liner notes. And I just find that so fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting to think about like, you know, who else is just like, when you have kind of like that budget and that, and that kind of clout, like who you could just like call to be like, Hey, we need somebody to like, you know, do a pretty sick solo, you know, <laughs> like, I'm yeah. not laughing with session player. Can we get Prince? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, what's really interesting now, um, and, and like, this is kind of like, you know, thinking about, thinking about like the label, like thinking about my label and just kind of thinking about like where music's going. Um, I think we're in a really interesting time now with visual arts and with like, just like the, the nonstop visual content that we're getting and how that is really kind of being the launching pad for a lot of really interesting, like avant-garde artists. Um, So like I've watched, you know, like I watched dark and raised by wolves, you know, because Ben Frost was involved in the music. Right. Uh, I watched, you know, good times and, um, Uncut Gems because Onio Tricks Point never, you know, did the music. And so I think we're in a really interesting time where like that is kind of like sort of whatever mechanism that is to like kind of like um, bringing people in from like the fringes and from the avant-garde. I really feel like it's like visual arts and movies and and TV shows now um, because it really celebrates like mood and it celebrates like interesting jarring sound transitions and stuff like that so i think we're in a really interesting place with that well it's it's i think about this a lot because i'm also in my other life of a horror movie junkie and you know if you listen if you watch like hereditary i mean that movie is based on experimental music yes there are scenes where it's like they use the sound of the fan in such a horrifying way and then it's like weird experimental soundscapes under that sound and it peaks and don't even realize it's peaking and it just stops. I mean, there is some really cool shit going on. Oh yeah. Um, the, the horror genre when it comes to just oh. this moody experimentation right now is out of control. Yeah. I mean, Eraserhead basically like launched an entire uh, like subgenre of dark ambient music, right? <laughs> I owned it. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, great. Well, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I, I like how <laughs> I kind of like where we landed. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for 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 chatting with me. It's been really, um, really great talking to you. Again.